Contact. Hello and welcome to Ribbon of Memes, uh, episode eight. Eight, yes. What, um, what happens at the gaming weekend stays at the gaming weekend. <laughs> um, we are um, discussing, we're in the year 1977, mm. um, and we thought we would pick a science fiction classic. Um, I am, of course, referring to the one and only science fiction film of 1977, Close Encounters of a Third Kind. Of the Third Kind, in fact. Yeah, there was, there was some, some Lucas guy, but yeah, never come to anything. Some other, some other nonsense happened as well. Um, I, uh, there will be spoilers of Close Encounters, um, mm-hmm. much as that is possible with, with uh, Close Encounters. I will do my, um, classic brief synopsis of the film uh, which is this basically um, a young father abandons his family for an impromptu foreign exchange trip <laughs> that would uh, that would <laughs> that would summarize it for me um, I don't know if you have anything to add to the uh, the summary I can I can be more expert I think most people are aware of the plot of close encounters yeah and if not hey you know, it's, it's out there not hard to go and read read the Wikipedia plot summary if nothing else it is it is a slight plot i would, <laughs> i would say but we'll we'll come on to that this is our second featuring of um uh, the young mr steven spielberg um who you may have heard of he, it is i was going to say second feature it's not a second feature it's his fourth no he'd done a uh, duel which i i still rate as excellent and sugarland express which i haven't seen and Jaws, which we've already talked about, but this was his follow-up to Jaws. And if Jaws heralded the summer of blockbusters, I guess 1977 was the full-blown manifestation of it. Um, although there was another film that rather overshadowed Close Encounters. And at the time, I think Spielberg was strongly advised not to make a science fiction film and to follow up with uh, a proper blockbuster after the success of Jaws. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we will t- may talk later about what he did next after this, because I don't think it's going to be on our list of masterpieces. Uh, oh, well, it wasn't 1942, was it? 41, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, there we go. I can't remember the name. I, I think it was like that film, But it's got Christopher Lee in it. It anyway, was uh, remarkably um, despised by pretty much everybody, including him. Anyway. It, it feels like a film that is... Uh, yeah, we're not talking about 1942. We, we don't come to... Uh, I feel it's more beaten up than deserved to be, uh, whereas some films are less beaten up than they deserve to be. Um, speaking of which, closing it. No, I'm not. I'm not going to be too down on close encounters, but um, there are bits I like, and I've got to say that the first two scenes I absolutely love. Do you I, I don't mean, mean the, I don't mean that in a deprecatory way. I mean I enjoy them so much that anything after them would be a letdown, and to some extent was. So I, I'm possibly going to be harder on the rest of the film than I might have been had it not had those first two. So to clarify, that is the discovery in the is it uh, the Moroccan desert, uh, Mexican desert, uh, Mexican of, of the desert, plains, yeah, of the missing 90, uh, flight nineteen fighter squadron. Um, that is a lovely, and it sets up a mystery and it is fair to say it's the mystery 
that drives this film rather than a solution. It is, is a mystery without uh, without a satisfying solution. It's it has a solution, but not really an explanation. Um, yeah, but ju- just that that opening scene, that the climbing into the desert, the looking at the planes, the seeing, you know. Yeah, they, they, they have the right, okay, they wouldn't actually have used engine serial numbers because a radial engine doesn't have an engine block. But, uh, right, okay. It worked for me. They would have had serial number plates on the aircraft. Yes. And you're just looking at, they're looking at the calendar saying, yeah, it, it's still got fuel, it's still got power, it just, it, it just works. This is not a plane that's been sitting here for 40 years. And so And on. then the obvious question, so where's the pilots? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I agree, that's a really nice, set up and in a way i kind of knew too much about the rest of the film to be as excited about that than i would be perhaps if i'd seen that completely fresh i mean as far as completely fresh this is a film that i saw i was one when it, when it went to the <laughs> cinema if i saw it at the cinema i don't remember it i saw et first which may color my feelings which on is 82 83 something like that uh, a few years later anyway yeah same year as the thing um uh, tragically, uh, not tragically. They're very different films, to be fair. Both excellent. Um, yeah, I, I did I, see this in the cinema on its first run. Uh, I had a vague idea of what it was about, but really no more than that. And a thing that I don't know how much this was a generational thing, but certainly by that point, I had been soaked in the UFO stuff. You know, it was it it, it it was part of the air of you know okay a, a lot of people thought it was rubbish but it was just one of those things that everybody knew at least a little bit about. It seemed to develop in like like Chilean photography and biorhythms and yeah all that stuff. It's not really a thing before certainly before the First World War. I guess you had Foo Fighters in the First World War, but it wasn't really a phenomenon oh, well, until really come, the fifties. Really, it's Kenneth Arnold. Um, yes, the the is he the the chap who's supposed to be the the victim and the first victim? Of oh the no, era. no, no! Uh, he 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 was a professional pilot, and he, oh, I'm thinking of Mantel. He saw a thing that couldn't be uh, accounted for, or at least he claimed he did. Ah, uh, now I remember. He's the chap who described it as skipping across the sky like a saucer. Yeah, is that right. Yes, which pretty much and the, the the words flying saucer had previously been used, but that that was the incident that got a lot of publicity. Uh, there's some suggestion that the Chicago Sun was the first actually to say flying saucer in a newspaper headline, that kind of thing. Uh, what year was it? This was in the like Chuck Yeager test pilot. This is 47. Years. 47, so almost immediately after the Second World War. Yeah. Okay. And then it just developed into a cultural phenomenon. When was the supposed Roswell incident? That was in the 40s, late 40s or early 50s. Uh, I mean, the actual Roswell incident, but, uh, uh I'm going to have to look that up now, because uh, that is also, really... Also 47. Um... Yes, okay. Though that may have been... T- I think that was probably something that was overly... Mo- oh, I don't want to shave my hand. Overly mythologised later, rather than at the it time. It probably doesn't hurt that it happened about two or three weeks after Arnold. Right, okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, people were primed. It's an interesting context in which we discuss UFOs, in that we've just had, last month or the month before the official acknowledgement that there is something unusual going on um, or there are un- unidentified I don't know what they call them nowadays but there are flying objects which are unidentified or unidentifiable <laughs> um, has been confirmed by release documents by the Pentagon I think or is it the Navy? Yeah though 
the, the the flip side of that is, well, yeah, you can't identify everything. Well, exactly. I mean, unidentified <laughs> does not mean it's part, come part, from part of the problem century. here is is that UFO has come to mean alien spacecraft. Hmm. And I believe some of the people trying to be serious about the investigation now, now call them UAPs for unidentified aerial phenomena. Which now means that ufologists will now become UAPologists. <laughs> so I don't think they're ever going to escape. If it's a possibility, uh, I think the latest yeah, thing uh, I saw was that they've come from under the sea. But it's, it's interesting context. I, I, I've played board games about that. Uh, I've played XCOM 2, Terror of the Deep. Sorry. Um, <laughs> This uh, this phenomenon hasn't gone away, though it, is, it probably reached its height uh, around about the time of this film, possibly because of this film, but it was certainly... Yeah, well, I remember the, the one... Travis Walton case in 75 um, yes. claimed abduction. Though, of course, the X-Files were still coping on, coasting on this phenomenon 20 years later. Um, yeah, I, I think it can verge into conspiracy theories if if you start off by saying... Yes, yes, this is a plausible thing. There's enough evidence that I think it's reasonable. Then the government must have more evidence. Therefore, the government not talking about it must have a reason for covering it up. Yes. And then you can go to all sorts of... It's sort of, it's a story that tells itself as if they exist, why aren't the government telling us about it? I believe they do exist. Therefore, the government are covering something up. Um, yes. Anyway, so that's the background of, of ufology, which certainly influenced Spielberg because he, he made a, like a, a home movie, a short, I forget the name of it. But, uh, Firelight. Um, Firelight. In 64 of, when he was 17. And many of the shots in this film are kind of um, high budget versions of, of Firelight, or, so or, I gather. So we understand. I mean, it's, it's never actually been, it, it was shown to an audience, a local audience, and, and they just right. barely broke even. Um, but it's, I think about three minutes of it have been actually released more right. recently. Um, but yeah, so the, these first two scenes, we've got that desert scene, and then we've got the air traffic control scene, which, yes. okay, t- tickles one of my particular favourite things, which, you know how in a submarine film, they hardly ever stay inside the submarine, they want to show you these, the, sh- the things moving through the sea? Oh yeah, yeah. They they get that right here, they, they don't show you the guy in the cockpit seeing the thing, they show you yes. the, radio, the radio operator, the, and the air traffic controller. Guessing the reports. It's a a nicely built scene in that without them getting visually excited or, you know, uh, wow, there's something really going on here. Just the fact that he starts to gather a bit of a crowd around his screen and they slightly up their tempo of work shows that this is something really quite significant to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is very nicely played. And then the, the other nicely played thing when they ask... The, the aeroplanes involved, whether they want to make a report, and everyone mm-hmm. immediately is like, well, you know what, I'm not going <laughs> to... We're not yeah. going to talk about UFOs, let's not go down that route. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was, and I, I believe still is a problem. You, on, on the one hand, you ought to say, yeah, I saw a thing, maybe some maybe somebody was actually up there doing something they shouldn't. Yes. On the other hand, you don't want to be thought of as one of those UFO guys. Yes. <laughs> so. Which is clearly what's happening with the planes. You're right, they are really good building scenes. Um, and we're introduced to one of the main characters, uh, well, one of the main sub-characters, I suppose, which is Claude Lacombe, played by Francis Truffaut. In his uh, only, Truffaut. only time he was acting in a film he didn't personally direct, and I believe his only English, let's, let's phrase this carefully, <laughs> role in an English language film. Yes, that's fair. He does, he, he does says, have says some English, words of English but yeah. It's a very good, a very, um, I feel, I don't know a lot, I know, um, Jules Légion, 
Um, I don't know a huge amount otherwise about Francois Truffaut, other than he was uh, one of the new wave directors. He was mm-hmm. also either the originator or a strong proponent of the auteur theory, which we've referred to a few times. Mm. Um, and it's, it's probably relevant, considering talking about a Steven Spielberg film. Um, I don't know how much I subscribe to it, given the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think, it, you know, a director has got a very strong influence on a film, it's fair to say. Well, I, I, think, sole influence. I think we can or say me- mention some pr- so a production element here, which is that uh, even while they were filming, Spielberg was doing a lot of rewriting, or not so much rewriting as adding stuff. And yeah, I like this, I, I want this bit in, let's see if we can do that while we're here. Yes, apparently he was watching a lot of films during the evening and then uh, trying to yeah. put those influences in his screenplay. Particularly The Searchers. Oh, right, okay. By, by, um, by reliable account on site. So, yeah, the, the, the thing for me is we have those two gorgeous opening scenes and then we descend into Spielberg Kid. <laughs> mm, yes, you. We, Maybe we talked about this off off um, off air a it, little it bit. It wasn't so annoying the first time, and this was, I think, the first time he did it. Certainly, the first time I'd seen it. But knowing all the all the Spielberg kids who came later, it's just I think it's in Jaws it worked, but in Jaws, in Jaws they weren't they major were, characters. But, no, I, I it was interesting to me that you felt that because there are a number of kids in the film, and certainly um, Julian's. Uh, you know, uh, I, I forget the name of the the kid, the three-year-old who gets abducted, who is the MacGuffin uh, to some extent of the film, um, is this wide-eyed, innocent slash wise. Spielberg does this a lot, doesn't he, with his kids, that they are both innocent and knowing in yeah. a way that the ad, the the, no, the more grown-up and less open-minded adults aren't. Yeah, the whole wisdom um, of children thing. But yeah, you, you, you've, yeah. Had, you've had small children. Uh, yeah. Well, I had, a, you know, because um, the other family, the other kids that are shown are um, Roy Neary's kids, mm-hmm. and they are displayed as this uh, much more true to life to me, this force of entropy that just <laughs> <laughs> burrs their way. To, if you ever needed a, a, a evidence of the the law, the second law of thermodynamics, just look at the kids and <laughs> see what they do. To it. Um, I, and they, to me, are much more true to life, but they're also, to me, atypically for Spielberg, I felt, maybe maybe I'm wrong there, but I felt deliberately displayed as, portrayed as really quite annoying. <laughs> mm. And um, uh, and Roy, something that Roy wants to escape from. Um, yeah. Uh, so, which I mm. have some issues with. Yeah, um, well, i got to say, I, I was really surprised by how different Dreyfus looked in this, having, having seen him in Jaws. I've read this. I've read him described as someone who looks older than his years, and I think that is a fairly accurate description of him in this film. In in this, he looked younger to me. Really, you felt he looked younger than. Um, uh, I felt he looked. I, I felt he looked like a young father, but I felt he looked uh, scruffier. I mean, he's a very different. It's a nice acting. It's a very good acting performance by Richard Dreyfuss because he's a very different character to Hooper. Um, I, he's got the same sort of superficial charm, but that is very quickly worn away from him um, in a way that isn't from Hooper. Yeah, the, the way I, I see this, I mean, this is part of my problem with the film, I think, because I just really didn't like him. Mm. Um, I'm glad you said that, Roger, because neither <laughs> did I. I'm going to be honest. Uh, yeah, in, in that in that first scene, he's saying, "No, no, I don't want to help the kid with the homework. I want to play." Yeah. 
And yeah, maybe that was the first time he'd had to play all week, but we don't see the rest of the week. Yes. Uh, he, he, and he keeps coming over as what, what I fancy is doing is important and I'm not going to listen to anybody else who wants to say anything else. Yes. And I agree. Yeah. It's, I, he is, I mean, I, there's a reason I described it as a, a young man who abandons his family. I, I feel, and Spielberg himself has actually come back to this, that the problem with the whole film for me is that he, uh, behaves in an erratic way and I, I guess, you know, with, you know, 30, however many years it is, 35 years on, we have different perspective on mental health issues perhaps than we did in mm. 1977. Is it 35? Is it 45? Bloody hell. 45 <laughs> years. Oh, yeah, I forgot yeah. how old I am for a minute there. Um, no matter. But I feel like, you know, in some ways it's an interesting depiction, Roy, of... Uh, an ordinary man, and that is very much what Spielberg wanted. Yeah, he, he, he's definitely intended to be every man. Uh, in fact, they, he was originally looking for an older actor. Right. Um, not clear whether, whether that was going to be with the kids older as well or not, but uh, he, he, was, he was talking to people like Steve McQueen. Yes, I read that. It was unfortunately he doesn't really have the ordinary Shimo kind of feel. <laughs> that uh, yeah. no offense to Richard Dreyfus. Uh, well, no praise to Richard Dreyfus. That Richard Dreyfus does. He, he does every man very well. Richard Dreyfus. There are some actors that are very good. But, but yeah, I mean Dreyfus basically convinced King uh, convinced Spielberg that he, that he ought to cast him. Yes. Uh, and yeah, the, the the original idea was an, an older character, and, and uh, Spielberg said that he he liked the childlike approach that Dreyfus took with the character as they were filming, and so so he encouraged that. But the, yeah, and so I, so although I, I I I have some issues with you feeling that it is just that that kid is the main Spielberg character, or is the Spielberg kid character? I, I feel that that child character got much more developed in other films, E.T. particularly. <laughs> oh, it's um, it's just that I'm I just don't find kids particularly of that age terribly interesting, or for that matter, <laughs> terribly convincing. Uh, uh, but but coming coming back to to Roy, um, yes. I don't know whether you have uh, seen the rubbish films that that I saw uh, this this era and a bit later, but he comes over to me as a sort of Steve Gutenberg about the same time. <laughs> um, I think that is a slight no disrespect, some disrespect to Steve Gutenberg. I think that's a slight. Um... But you know the 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 the, the approach he takes of I'm going to do a thing and yeah. you say something else, but I'm going to do the thing anyway. It's very much the character that Gutenberg would play. Well, I guess this is what I'm getting to, that um, Roy is, you know, he's portrayed as this ordinary Joe. And actually, in the beginning of the film, he seems to be a distracted, but relatively good family man, in that he's good with his kids, he hmm. is, you know, at least well, a, a, okay with his... Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean... He, he hasn't murdered any of them yet. No, exactly. He, he has the only sane response to kids, which is not trying to beat them, but join them to some extent, but also <laughs> threatening them with murder from time to time, which is perfectly acceptable. But then uh, I thought it was interesting that he was then gripped with this mania, which in Roy's case is implanted by aliens. <laughs> um, mm, but Maybe. Uh, some of us is. Arguably. But that is, in a way... You know, the way that mental health issues could suddenly hit, you know, he's suddenly mm. struck by this. And I think, I, I'm no psychologist, but I think probably mania is in the sort of, uh, mental disturbances that he has. Well, that, that and fixation. Yes. I mean, and... by, by, by the time, uh, his, his wife takes the kids and leaves because she is clearly actually scared. 
Yes. Uh, I, I couldn't help noticing that he has not actually responded to anything that she has said since, no. since the encounter. He just hasn't answered it. I, uh, I, so I, and, you know, so I thought it was. If he, if he'd been talking about how the Jews are controlling everything and I got to build a bomb in my basement to take back <laughs> our government. He wouldn't be such a sympathetic character, would he? No. But that's how it came over to me. That, that sort of, yeah. this thing I care about is the only important thing. And I, I don't even notice agree. you anymore. I and so, you know, asked, she, she, she leaves with the kids and she's never seen again. And well, she's, <laughs> she's on a telephone call later on, but then, yeah. uh, I, I, have um again in reading some of the reviews of that you know a lot of people describe her as like shrill perhaps too shrill i felt she responded in a completely sane way now i agree i you know they say she just wants to ignore the fact that he's been through this um strange experience by covering up his sunburn i think you know she goes along to the inquest or whatever it was with him she tries mm-hmm. but whatever she does his mania slash uh fixation gets worse and to me she does maybe not the only thing she could do, but the only thing she could think of doing for her children because mm. she's thinking about them. Roy isn't. Roy isn't giving shit. He's making potato <laughs> images of devils. Um, uh, devils throwing, throwing the garden tower. into the house. Yeah, uh, and I I don't know whether that scene was meant to be played for comedy or who's. I felt our sympathies in that. Uh, was meant to be with Roy, and mine were very much with um, with Ronnie, his mm. wife, um, and with the children. And, and actually, at that moment when he he suddenly piles up the mashed potato and makes Devil's Tower, and just suddenly he, he's not he's, he's not functioning as anything other. But yeah, he has that moment of clarity, and it's great. Yeah, when he says, you know, I guess you can see there's something wrong with Dad. But I'm still dad. But that is, you know, he says I'm still dad, but in no functional way is he still a father yeah, well, to the children. And, and the thing on the phone where he, he I, I got the feeling he's saying, you know, please come back. Um, I want to see you again and so on. But that, that's not what his obsession is telling him to do. That's just a thing he feels he should do because that's the thing you do when your wife's left you. Yes, he's, he's mouthing platitudes. <laughs> so, you know, all, all credit to Dreyfus for making it look convincing. So yes, I felt it was a convincing portrayal of a man with a, an acute onset mental illness. But that was hard to have my sympathies with him and to make him a hero figure. Mm. I, uh, yeah. I I struggled to identify with him because he was in a mental state that I didn't identify with. I could see he was in mental difficulties. I felt sorry for him, but I didn't particularly like him for it yeah. and from then on from when his wife has left him that the film sort of mm, goes with him you know yeah. and it turns out he's right that, it turns out he's completely right that, there's another thing in that, that that i noticed because i've been trying to look at things in a more um you know visual way uh that all the scenes with him up to the point where his wife leaves are either indoors or dark some of the indoors ones, there's, there's daylight outside. Right, okay, yes. When she leaves, it's daylight, and then it's all daylight. Right up to the point they, they cross the mountain, and then it's dark again. Uh, which gets lit up pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> by, uh, by... Where, oh, whereas all the stuff yeah. with Lacombe uh, that's outside is, is daytime. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I was thinking of his first encounter with the aliens, but that's, yeah, he's in the dark of his cab in the night. Hmm. Um Oh, that's an interesting one. I think we've both come to the fact we didn't really either identify with. I did at first, as a young father, 
but during his his obsession, yeah, I didn't. I also was uncomfortable with. He had presence of mind enough to show his clear, you know, these his relationship with Julian. That that was not just a, we are compadres that have, have got a similar thing. There was a clear romantic mm. interest there. You know the way they uh, caress each other when they meet um, uh, at the station. Yeah, and the you know the final kiss is not a goodbye kiss. That's a passionate kiss, mm. and I felt uncomfortable. There was no kind of judgment from the film. There was no. And I don't mind. I don't. I don't expect to be. But it was. Yeah, I mean, I we're, we're, we're not saying you know, everybody whose wife has left them can 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 never do do a thing again. But it it is a bit sort of. It's all a bit fast moving. Yeah, yeah. I felt um, there was no kind of. It felt condoned and complicit, and there was no acknowledgement on either of them that you may have been. I, I don't know. I felt maybe, a little maybe we ought to think about this a bit. <laughs> yeah. 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 They were just caught. I, I think it goes back to exactly what you said. This is what I want to do, and I'm going to do it. Mm. And I, <laughs> I don't really care what anyone else thinks, including my wife, who I'm never going to see again. Um, presumably, yeah. never, ever again. Well, because we don't Roy, know. I said, well, yeah, and we don't. Honestly, we don't want to know. And I don't mean that in a. I don't care. I mean the film ends where it should end, or in the case of the Mothership Edition, um, a bit after it. I'd like to say, even Pauline Kael, who mostly quite liked this film, uh, did describe it as a vindication of village crazies. Which, <laughs> yes. which I find hard to read in a positive way. <laughs> I, uh, I, I agree. I, um, neither of us desperately like to identify with Roy. Um, I, uh, how did you feel about... Um, the the other characters in the film. How did you feel about Gillian? Um, more practical, really. I mean, yeah. yeah, she she is a bit one note to start with. You know, I am scared. I I am a defensive mother, and this thing is after my kid. Yes. Um, but once she actually gets to have some personality beyond that, she she's clearly trying to think about it. Yes. Um, she's she's a whole lot less obsessed and traumatized than Roy is. She, by uh, by me, an event which you might consider more traumatic, you know, her child has actually been abducted. That was a strength but, to me. That was, that could have been overplayed. Here it was very underplayed that she was... Well, particularly in that press conference scene, I got the feeling that, you know, everybody is waiting for her to be the hysterical woman, and she knows yes. perfectly well that that won't help. Yes. Uh, that was a nice... Yeah, I felt that was uh, good, but she see, by the time she's met Roy again uh, on their trip to Devil's Tower, she... Oh, you know, she doesn't mention her son really at all until right at the end when she's like, I'm not ready to go. Um, he's not with me. But it, you don't get, I, I feel, but I agree with you. I feel like she feels like someone who's fighting against this strange compulsion. Roy has just fully embraced it. Mm. Um, uh, which I, and I, I've actually re- I, or either read or saw an interview with Spielberg who said, who has admitted he didn't have children when he wrote this film, and if he did, he would never have let Roy get onto the spaceship and abandon his family <laughs> in the way that he did. And I'm, I, uh, I don't want to play the I have kids card, but I must say that to me is on, it's on my mind that he just almost never thinks about them again, mm. or, or never shows any. And yet, I am here going to acknowledge Spielberg's power as the, the Lovecraft of wonder. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that, you know, Lovecraft famously got his, a lot of his descriptive power from not describing things and leaving things to our imagination. Yeah. 
and Spielberg can do that too. I mean, he evokes a different, you know, when Lovecraft does it, it's a sense of cosmic horror and dread. When Spielberg does it, he can evoke a childlike wonder. Now, that may be me remembering the feelings I had um, with E.T. And, just, you know, when I left E.T., I was just distraught. I mean, what was I, seven? I was distraught that I would never have a friendship like that, that I would never be with it. And I just, <laughs> I wanted it so badly, this nostalgic, already at that age, this nostalgic yearning for something that I couldn't describe, um, filled with wonder. And I was watching this film this time. I was watching Close Encounters. Think, oh, yeah, well, that's a long light sequence. Yeah, maybe it'd be better <laughs> in the cinema. Oh. And then Roy, about to get on the ship, turns back and smiles. And something about the composition or the lead up or something. Mm-hmm. I just that bastard Spielberg. He got me again. He just hit me right there. <laughs> that I just yeah. felt this huge yearning. Uh, envy of Roy about to get on this wondrous spaceship, this just sense of wonder that Spielberg just is phenomenally good at producing. I, I think one, one of the things that he does here is, in all that queuing, the, the, the visual, the sound and all the rest of it, uh, he can basically make make you forget the, the loopholes in the script, at least for the moment, or the, mm. or the thinness of it. I mean, it's, it's great when there's a good script as well. But clearly it's not necessary. Yes, he surprised me. Oh, you know, I was watching this on my phone um, in a rarely brightly lit room with the kids around me. <laughs> and so, you know, far from ideal to be bowled over by the wonder, but somehow he did it. And I was surprised because, you know, up to that point, I wasn't hating... I, I, no, I certainly wasn't hating the film, but I was... I was thinking, like, yeah, I can remember why I preferred E.T., you know, I just, <laughs> this is a very slight film, and I'm not sure I like this guy, but then it just, out of the blue, mm, I was taken back to, I don't know, Temple of Doom, it's not the best film, but it, it invokes that sense <laughs> to me of that age. Um, E.T., he's just, um, I don't know, he struck a chord in some way, and I say childlike, because it feels, I, the minute you... This is, this is not feeling. a thing that requires you to have sophisticated thoughts. Yes. It actively doesn't that, want you to. Exactly. The more you hold that feeling up to analysis, the more you're like, you know, Roy's on the mothership. Uh, where did everyone else go? <laughs> Why am I the only one? What, that, what about what? all the people who actually got trained for this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, um, but he got me. So I'm going to, I'm going to admit that, that I, I was, I was surprised right at the end of the film that that, that really hit me hard. Mm. Um, I didn't mention with um, uh, Lacombe's character, the Truffaut, one thing he adds that I didn't feel either Gillian or Roy added is a deep sense of humanism. He just, he, he really, he feels like a caring, uh, powerful human, humanist. Um, well, also, we're, we're trying to think about these things rather than yeah. just... I'm got, I've got a feeling I'm going to follow it. And yeah, maybe that this is more to do with your and I, your and my background, Roger, but certainly I probably <laughs> identified more with Truffaut's character than I did with yeah. Roy. Um, yeah, the, the thing that really kept, kept hitting me on this, and this links back a bit to, to, uh, network that we talked about last time. Yes. Um, and the, the idea of a religious experience as a particular sort of thing. 
what we're getting here is basically the believer's argument because you know, what what we have in the real world, somebody says, "Do you believe UFOs are alien spacecraft?" is yes. one crazy guy with some obvious fantasies that might have some grain of truth in them, and that there's plenty of reason to be sceptical. What we have here is we have seen the planes, we have seen the the, the light over the cab and the sunburn and all the rest of it. Yes. So. <laughs> Rather, you know, if if we were in the world of the film, what we would have is ranting Roy saying, "You got to see it! You got to see it! It was amazing." <laughs> yeah. yeah, which wouldn't be convincing, but because we have actually seen it, we're made complicit in knowing I... th- this is the truth, and therefore anybody who disbelieves it is obviously being stupid because here is the obvious truth. And that, yes, I agree. That feels like the standpoint we are forced into. But there is, um, there is also an element of faith in this because. The motives of the the beings, we don't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. It's a complete mystery, but it is sort of taken on faith here. And I'm, I don't want to be too jaded. <laughs> and, you know, with the many films that have been since or before, there were plenty of, as we've said, offline commies in space movies before mm. this, um, as you've uh, rightly said. And I... Um, but we are taking on faith here that this is a good thing, that it is a wondrous thing, that these beings are here to help us, to uplift us, and everyone is filled with joy. Whereas, you know, the cynic in me was expecting right after uh, Truffaut's character does the hand movements with the uh, with the uh, marionette alien, or whatever it was, um, for it to, with its grin on its face, to gesture and have the aliens from Mar- Mars attacks march down the <laughs> March down the gangway and start there vaporising everyone. Um, uh, so there is an element of faith there that even though we know it's true, you sort of take it on faith that these are benign, beneficent mm. uh, gods or however you want to take it. But I agree, there's a, there's a strong sense of religion. Yeah, um, I, I do see a, sl- a slight connection. Um, I've started to pay attention uh, for the last few years to uh, rapture theology. They, they started, well, they started it. They tried to take away my role-playing games. <laughs> uh, tell, uh, tell us about Rapture Field. Well, the the, the basic idea um, is, a, is a belief, of, often loosely derived from reading the Bible very much out of order, that there will at some point be a great tribulation, as in horrible things will happen on Earth in a divine way. Uh, and either before or after this, or in some cases during it, a, a rapture of the believers. In other words, all, all, all the good true believing people get taken away from all this horror. Uh, right. But, um, Fred Clark, uh, who posts a slacktivist has, has pointed out that a lot of this is effectively a, a, a sublimation of fear of death. And specifically the, the phrase God coming to get us before we die. You know, it's, it's getting into heaven without that scary dying thing. And I'm seeing this as sort of related to that. Uh, I don't remember. Late Great Planet Earth was 1970. Um, it, it, it was sort of in, in the, in the zeitgeist, though not to a huge extent. And, um, yeah, there's there's that. Could that, you know, that, that closing scene could be a, a stowaway into actual literal heaven and it wouldn't really play very differently. Oh my god, absolutely. You know, Roy is literally taken up into the heavens. Um, oh yeah, I couldn't agree more. That is a very good reading of it, that he's, it is 
strongly implied uh, that he's not coming back and he's going to a better place. You know, it's got a real Grey Havens feel about it. Or at least nobody knows what is going to happen, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, yes, I completely agree. Uh, incidentally, there's a marvellous, uh, by which I mean dreadful, series of films called Left Behind, which is set am, after the rapture. I'm um, all too familiar with them. Oh, well, okay, in that case, they won't go. Uh, the the films are actually a lot better than the books because the films were made by true believers as opposed to, say, competent directors, actors, and so on. Okay, right. Um, the, oh, the, the, the guy who plays the Antichrist in one of the films is absolutely perfect. I mean, no scenery left unchewed. Oh, yes. Uh, there's, uh, if we ever do a dreadful films podcast, then... Uh, which, uh, uh, I, I've, which I've got candidates for that. <laughs> I'm I'm so many, I. many candidates. Oh my god, but they have to be, you know, it's a fine line with Dread Films, though, because they genuinely have to be so bad they're good. The but... Omega Code. Michael Ironside as Hasidic Assassin. <laughs> oh I'm... my god. <laughs> I have a horrible feeling that was by a dyslexic screenwriter. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but let's get, uh, get, Getting by. back to this film, yeah. I absolutely, there are strong religious, yeah, I, I, I don't think that is much of a stretch to say this is a, uh, trying to capture a religious experience for a non-religious audience. Mm. I think Spielberg himself, well, he's Jewish, isn't he? But at at this point, religious. he regarded himself, I, I believe, as a non-practicing Jew. Um, right, okay. where, where, when he married Kate Gampshaw, she converted to Judaism and that, that sparked up his religious feelings to some extent, but that was quite a few years after this. Right, okay. So it does feel like a, uh, yeah, as you say, like the rapture is um, uh, getting to heaven, uh, uh, skipping that nasty death business. And in a way, this is this feels like getting to heaven, skipping both the nasty death business and the having to be religious business. Um, <laughs> there's, uh, yeah, I, I am. But, but you do have to believe. Yeah, and, and the, 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 the distinguishing thing about Roy is that he he has absolutely been a believer, and that is what defines him. As, is, uh, as opposed to these people who might be, you know, scientists or whatever, who were chosen as volunteers or whatever. Yeah, oh yeah. I think that is a very fair reading of it, that he is the true believer in the film, which is probably, to some extent, what puts us off him, because he, he really is a true believer to the detriment of the entire rest of his life and his family. I, I can't remember where it comes from, but there is a saying that saints are hell to live with. <laughs> um, I'm sure Roy's wife would strongly agree with you if we are indeed calling him a son. Um, speaking of um, uh, of the film itself, actually moving on to because we discussed yeah. the, I'm not sure there's any more significant characters in it really to discuss. Particularly, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry if I forgot. Oh, except to say we have our regular Lance Henriksen check in, as you pointed out. Yeah, I, I was aware that he was he was in it, uh, though I didn't know what role it was. And uh, that, that I spotted him in the background of a scene, and then every time after that, he he is basically the number three after um, Lacombe and Laughlin. Yes, the translator. I think he gets one line, and then as the other characters come up, he steps into the background and out of focus. Yeah, but but, but every, every time there are three of them, he's the third one. Yes, yeah. It was, and, it was uh, nice uh, to see it. And during a lot of the second half of the film, I, I was just saying, here's, here's, okay, so, so we're going back to them. Where's, where's Lance? There he is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it became slightly distracting. The other character check-in I would like to say is a connection between this film and my beloved old LucasArts studio, who did some of the games I'm greatly fond of. The first returnee from the fighter planes that climbs off the um, 
that climbs off the UFO mm-hmm. is none other than Hal Barwood, who later went to work for LucasArts Studios and was largely responsible for Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, which is a flipping amazing graphic adventure game and mm-hmm. much better than um, the actual fourth Indiana Jones film. So thank you, Hal. <laughs> that was a bloody good game. Um, moving on to yeah, the film. Visual effects, uh, the... A yeah. lot of it by Douglas Trumbull. Um, it, it's now actually described quite often as industrial light and magic, but it wasn't because they were working on Star Wars. They were the group Lucas put together to work on Star Wars. That's right. And then and they came off it to work on closing. No, that, that, that was the thing. They, they, they were happening. They were overlapping in production. Trumbull was the guy that Lucas had asked to head up what would be, would become ILM. Ah, uh, okay. Yes. I'm with you. But, but, but he didn't for whatever reason and, and did this instead. So this is actually, yeah. I remember an old rumour. I should have Googled this before I film. Is there an R2-D2 stuck on the mothership? There is. Ah, there we go. It's quite small near the edge, but uh, yes, it is there. Well, there we go. Okay. Not that that, that's (laughs) completely... uh, That that I have seen in a close-up. I'm I'm told there's also US mailbox and various other things. Um, I mean, the design of the... it, It is... I can only imagine how visually impressive it was in the theatre. Haven't seen you have. Do you remember being bowled over? Oh yeah, by it, it worked. Yeah, it does feel. Even it, then, I noticed the perspective problems. Where you know it's behind the mountain, it's bigger than the mountain, and then it then it comes comes down and fits. But. I was, even on my little <laughs> film as well. I, uh, on my little uh, phone, I'm sorry to say that I was watching this on. Uh, it was noticeable to me that it just wouldn't happen nowadays. Uh, you know, the lighting. You've got the kind of the matte painting of the Devil's um, Tower, and the lighting on it doesn't change at all. Even though there's this huge luminescent UFO flying right mm-hmm. over the top of it. I, th- but, I think that may have been an actual uh, shot rather than just a mat, but either way, I agree. Either way, it doesn't... Um, but uh, I would say the the final, uh, the finale, works for me in a way that 2001, the 2001 finale, uh, doesn't. It just doesn't. It just goes on and on and on. And, and well, meaningless. yeah, if... I, I did actually track down, because uh, it's on YouTube, so it didn't take a lot of tracking down, uh, the mothership footage that was added for the... Uh, re-release, which we'll come back to. And that is very 2001. You know, here is this guy oh, yeah. standing there trying to look awed as lights shine on him and, and things <laughs> yeah. happen. <laughs> and, well, and, we'll come yeah. back to the special edition, but I, I but feel... That, that, that I, I, yeah, not doing that is, is, is a deliberate choice, and it's a good choice. Yes. Uh, I, I think it... Um, though, speaking of the overall pacing of the film, this the edition we both watched... We could talk about editions. Was I believe the director's cut, yeah, the as distinct from the special edition, as distinct from the original theatrical version. Mm-hmm. Um, this version, to me, it, and I suspect it would have done whichever version we watched. It dragged to A me. Bit. I'm it, it's only about five minutes longer than theatrical. As my yeah. recollection of theatrical is, that kind of dragged at places as well. Yeah, so I guess that's what I mean. I don't think it's this edition particularly. The film. Um, it's not very plot heavy um and it it just went on too long for me and including the finale which does uh, you've uh, you know you felt the man who would be king dragged a bit of this my memory of this from childhood my memory of this film was oh that took much longer than et and it wasn't as good <laughs> <laughs> um I, I it does drag to me um I'm... i and i surprises me the reason i bring it up is because the pacing of jaws was 
I, one of the best edited films I've ever seen. It's ferociously tight, yeah. Yes, and and this isn't. I mean, I'm not. I don't demand that everything be ferociously tight. If I say something feels a bit slow, that doesn't mean I think it would be absolutely better if it were cut shorter. No, but I'm at least noticing that it is slow, which yeah. I I, fe- I feel a film shouldn't really give me time to notice stuff like that. Yeah, just it doesn't have to be the oh, modern day Doctor Who kind of pace, but it, <laughs> <laughs> but it does have to be. Well, I, oh, it doesn't. It's not hugely to a film's detriment, but you don't want a film to outstay its welcome. And I was every so often tapping my phone, just checking how long there was left, <laughs> um, and not in a good way. It's not like, oh, I'm really enjoying this film. I hope it doesn't end soon. I was like, oh, okay, it's another another thirty minutes, really, because <laughs> it feels <laughs> like they've said everything already. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, there are bits that work really well. Um, I, I liked that, that whole subplot, um, where you, 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 there's the story about the nerve gas leak, which obviously we, the audience know is false, but then they see the dead animals mm. and they start thinking, uh, hang on, do we, have, do we have a, is there actually something going on here? Yeah. And I, I, all right, I laughed out loud when they got out the gas masks because the kind of the point about nerve gas is, is it doesn't need, it, it will go through the skin because that's pretty much what they do. Uh, but they had been, presumably, that's not explained, I think it is in one of the editions, it's not explained to us where the gas mask came from, but there was this kind of shock, shockster? Uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the guy at the evacuation point. Yes. Sal- Salingham. Yeah, that, that was in the version I watched. Yes. Um, but yeah, and, and then rather than have a whole scene about breathe, breathe, oh, I'm not dead, what, what's happening? They just have it as a throwaway line of, yeah, it's the same thing, we're, we're, we'll spray the mountain with this stuff, it's the same thing we used on the animals. Yes, that was, that was a nice Which advances of... the plot as well as explaining the thing that's gone before, and that, 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 was, just, that was just really well done. Yes, agreed, affirmative. <laughs> um, here's the thing, we, we, when we were talking about Jaws, we were talking about that he never uses a false music cue, you know, the, the, the shark theme is only in the real shark attacks. Yes. He, he does that here. Um, yeah. The one with the helicopters, you've got all the uh, auditory queuing that's been going with the actual aliens. Yes. And th- that's when they're on the road, isn't it? And then Yeah, when, when they come back and they're, they're, there's a whole bunch of people together there. I wasn't at all fooled, though, by that. It didn't... Maybe we, we've I probably, it we've probably seen a lot more helicopters flying at night than people yeah, had in 77. it just looked like... It, there was something <laughs> distinctly different about... But I agree, yes, the music... Maybe that temporarily confused me then, or maybe that was deliberate. It probably was deliberate. We have John Williams again, who you disparaged somewhat in Jaws. Um, how did you feel about him here? Uh, you, you know when John Williams wants you to feel tense. <laughs> yes, you, fair and, enough. And you know when John Williams wants you to feel exalted. And those are basically the two moods he has. I don't mind people telling me what to think in a film. <laughs> That's fine. I don't. Mind. I, I didn't. To be but fair, I, I, I didn't find it obtrusive. No, I mean it's got this iconic, dur, 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 and that's that's played quite a lot. Um, hmm. Apparently, he did many hundreds of five-note things until Spielberg picked that one. Mm-hmm. But he picked the right one. Feels good. Yeah, and that is. Well, I guess it's the thing. It's great cinema, but it's it's kind of meaningless because we never actually yeah. find. I mean, all, all the actual significance it seems to have is. This is a consistent signal. I have heard this and I'm going to broadcast it back to you to prove that I am actually, you know, a sappy yes. being. And which, true which characters they know. Seem, to, seem to sort of, uh, attach some great sort of linguistic significance to it, but I couldn't, I'm no linguist, but I didn't feel 
there was a lot of good uh, linguism. <laughs> <laughs> well, pa- I, I think part of the problem there is, you know, we're saying, yes, we're here, we understand this is a message, and then the, there's the uh, back and forth with, with the lit sign and so on. Mm. But we never find out what any of it means, if anything. They, they, there's a brief, there's a sentence. It's described it, as, you know, the computer has decoded the language. But Yeah, and that is it. We never find out what they're talking about. It is implied that they know what they're talking about. To me, I don't know, I was slightly put off by that whole back and forth. It felt like some jazz solo in a club. <laughs> I just, I'm not a huge fan of jazz, and it just felt like some uh, awful improv where they're enjoying it way more than you are sitting, waiting for your drinks and wondering if you look cool enough. <laughs> if you're wondering, then you probably don't. Uh, <laughs> oh. On the other hand, that the the... The set for that scene is lovely, mm. and it, it's I mean, obviously part part of this is my nostalgia, but it's got it's got that just right, slightly post space age feel to it. Well, obviously mm. that was contemporary at the time, and yeah, you know, the the actual Apollo missions were still going on. I think just about um, seven, yeah, yeah. seventy nine was the last one. Seventy eight, seventy nine. Anyway. anyway, they they were still the thing that was in people's minds. They they knew what a space mission looked like, and this is clearly like a space mission, but not quite. And, and, and that, a, that that is beautifully done. Surprisingly, and I was trying not to uh, throw my cynicism into it, so it was very unmilitary, that base. You know, they could just mm. wander onto it. I didn't see a single firearm in the actual base itself, yeah. uh, on on behind Devil's Den. I, I was slightly confused by, uh, by the fact they were climbing up... Um, the Devil's Tower, and I got the impression they'd climbed right to the top. And this they, they certainly talk the about getting to the top. Yeah, and but, then but no, it's quite I, I clear it's behind. It's it. meant to be on the other side. Yeah, it's as yeah, if it were so a, was, a, a sort of knife-edged peak. Yes, I was slightly uncharacteristic. Well, I, I felt Spielberg doesn't normally confuse you in that sort of way, and I was yeah. momentarily disorientated. But that's a that's a bit nitpicky. It, it's also uh, what was the film um, North by Northwest. Oh, lovely. Yes, but, you know, there, there, there's, ju- just as he had that vertigo shot in uh, Jaws, yes. which, which really threw me out of the film because it was so obviously borrowed from somewhere else. <laughs> yes, uh, fair we, enough. We, we've got that, that homage to North by Northwest as they're climbing the mountain and there's the whole, you know, slide back and grab on. And Yes, all right, it could happen other, other ways, but it, it felt like Spielberg saying, yeah, look at this thing. I know this thing. Yes, fair enough. He did like his Hitchcock. It seems the only role you'll be happy with is when I play dead. Your very <laughs> next role, Mr. Kaplan. It'll be most convincing, I assure you. Oh, God. We should watch it like nothing. Um, <laughs> On the so other hand, I, uh, I, I would like to say uh, Roger's yes. Guns Corner, uh, which, <laughs> which I've been mostly putting in, in the blogs that uh, sort of accompany these, if you really care. Wow, were there many guns in the film? No. Um, they're basically, wow. they, they're using M16s. Um, there are a couple of sub-variants that, that serious gun geeks, in which I do not include myself, May, may be interested. Right. But the, there is one, one particular shot where there's, there's a guy carrying an M16 with a scope. I think it's meant to be a scope that is larger than the rifle itself. And, oh, is that oh a wow. Dino? I've no idea what that is. It, it's no piece of actual hardware I'm familiar with. Perhaps it's what you use to shoot down a spaceship. Um, <laughs> well, well this, this is when they're chase, chasing them up the mountain just before they get told, turn back because we're going to gas the place. That's where the military is mainly involved, isn't it? Um, yeah. we, actually, we've gone on quite some length about this film, more than I thought we would. Um, uh, um, 
I'm wondering if I've got much more to say. Well, I... there, there was one other thing, and well, okay, I've got a few other things. <laughs> yes, yeah, let's hear it. Um, I got got a, got a bit of a rant. Um, we, we've got all. It, it feels as if there are different bits of script. I, as I understand it, the original script was written by someone else. I can't remember the name now. Oh, I have um, a few people who worked at Paul Schrader, who that's wrote the, Taxi that's the Driver. Yeah, uh, he, uh, so and he, then he, also Hal Barwood. Lovely help. Well, Schrader uh, turned, turned the script too. over to Spielberg. Uh, Spielberg changed it enough that uh, Schrader wanted his, cre- his credit taken off it. In the end, it was only Spielberg's credit on the screenplay, though. I, I think it was, from the end, it was I, as I understand it, it was added on the basis that he had to have a named author. Right. And, he, and he'd done quite a bit of it. So I, I don't know how much of that is there. But sorry, to come back to the actual point I was trying to make, we, we've sorry. got all this stuff about the tonal language. Yes. And yeah, this is how they communicate and so on. But they can send the coordinates, not only in base 10, but yeah. in base 10 with sexagesimalian subdivisions. That made no sense to me. They, they're sending longitude and latitude. If, if you understand long and lat well enough to send that, well, A, you'd have a, a north and west on it, because yeah. as it is, it describes four separate positions. Uh, but also, you know, if you understand that much, I feel you must also understand English. Whether you yeah. say they got that from the pilots, which is a plausible thing. They, they ought to be able to get more. Okay, yeah. But still, they could, if they got that from the pilots, then you'd think they could have got a bit... Yeah, fair enough. So that that was just a bit... I mean, it's, it's clearly meant to be we are making progress and this is how we discover where the place is by conventional yeah. means rather than having visions of it. And that's needed. But... Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That that brought me out of it a bit when they... I didn't think of it quite as you did, but when they were given longitude and latitude on my globe... That felt like a very human thing that they wouldn't hmm. know how to do, um, or not in a way to communicate. To. One can forgive them being Americans for assuming the quadrant that would put a, have a position in America. <laughs> <laughs> though though uh, the the actual Devil's Tower is, is about four degrees north of the position they give, but hey. <laughs> I was oh goodness, I was reading about Devil's Tower, fascinating place, but um, covered with tourists now since this film, of course. Yeah, it, it did get a whole lot more, uh, and it seems to have continued. Um, Another small thing that worked for me, the, the, what I like to think of as ominous normality. Um, both the, the bit with the, the, you've got the ice cream van and the Coca-Cola van and the well-known brands going out yes. to, to do whatever they're, whatever it is they're up to. Uh, but also the crashing and banging toys. You know, here, here is the, the safe, secure, familiar thing and they have taken it over. That was, actually, that was, I did want to talk about that. The scene where, um, uh, Gillian's kid is abduct, abducted. It's straight out of a horror movie. It is, yeah. Um, and that was a nice, that was an interesting, you know, Spielberg, you know, he has got this, I think, somewhat undeserved reputation for being, you know, Capra's heir of um, uh, sugary sweet stuff. And mm. I, there's a lot of stuff here that is not, I, I mean, he does err on the side of wonder and he's fantastic at it, but he's good at, you know, that horror scene is is effective. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm assuming the intended reading is this is scary because we don't understand it, but it is very much the same sort of thing that would happen in a horror film if you had an evil hungry ghost trying to get into the house. Yes, the one so. difference would be the kid would be screaming too instead of smiling and coming out of the cat's lap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and a uh, th- thing we were mentioning in passing before before we started recording uh, the the shift um, it, it's not an absolute dividing line but, but broadly I, I find the 1950s and earlier science fiction tends to be that the aliens are the space enemy as you say yes. you know, space commies um, 
And by this point, it's mostly, though not exclusively, gone over to the aliens have stuff we can actually learn from them. They, yes. they, are, they are more advanced than us rather than um, just invading. But as you say, the 50s have their fair share, for instance, Forbidden Planets and um, the Day the Earth are still of more benign yeah. aliens. Absolutely. Um, and the it, 80s it, it, have it, their fair share of uh, horrible aliens. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a broad shift, not not yes. an absolute, certainly. But yeah. uh, the, the, I mean, this obviously puts its uh, puts its marker down firmly on the they have stuff to teach us side, even if they're not going to. <laughs> but <laughs> yes, um, I think being being aware that yeah, by this point, somebody who has seen some science fiction is going to be aware that there are these two interpretations out there. They could be good aliens, they could be bad aliens, and that's mm. what some of the mystery is. Yes. There isn't a lot of mystery, but yeah, that horror scene sort of plays like it, except it's already. I feel played its end by then that these are beneficent. Um, yeah, well, for, for that matter, in 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 your actual UFO law, um, you you have these abduction stories. Yes, uh, as well it, as the they they told us we need to make peace or something. More more often than not in UFO law, it's the aliens that are benign and the government that is bad. That may be again. That's a sweet yeah, though the abductions and the probing side of things. No, yeah, nobody minds a bit of probing gotcha, from a space god. Um, I have two lines that I would like to check. One which I loved, one which I hated. Mm. One was "Watch the skies," which is obviously a direct homage to the thing from another world. Um, and which, believe, but I think that was the working title as well. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. It's that. Uh, oh, we should watch the thing from another world at some point. Yes. Um, uh, though there's not many films that can form effective horror from a space carrot. <laughs> um, <laughs> the line that I hated was Einstein was right, and then followed very quickly afterwards by, "Oh, he was probably one of them." Because, yeah. You know, he was too clever for a normal human, of course. Oh goodness! And what well, they were moving at relativistic speeds this whole time and haven't aged. So time has come on. What? What are you talking about? That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> And for that matter, it doesn't actually work if you go round in a big circle and come back to where you started. Uh, no, you can't travel backwards in time. Anyway, yes. But, uh, no, what was the, yeah, I'm just remembering Von Däniken, um, who, who was quite happily selling books saying the Egyptians could not have built the pyramids because they did not have rope, while ignoring the several miles of Egyptian rope in museums around the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, it got to me. That, that was, that was a, it was a niggle, but it was uh, it, it bothered me those lines. I think I'm. Done, I, I mean, overall for me. Oh, sorry, I don't want to do an overall. I, well, I, I just I, I, I have just just one uh, one specific thing before we get back into into the general stuff, which is of course the guy goes to go on the spaceship and presumably see the universe and wish upon a star plays on the soundtrack. The woman gets <laughs> her kid back. <laughs> um, and the guy and, is and, and probably a couple of marketable photographs. We do see her taking pictures. Oh yeah, you do. Yeah, she'll she'll do all right for herself. <laughs> um, oh, that rings me up. So yes, uh, yeah, the guy abandons his family and is quite happy. Uh, the woman is happy with her kid. But um, the aliens themselves, opinions are varied on whether it was wise to say these aliens or not. What it very much looked to me this time was a bunch of kids in alien suits, which is, uh, as it turns out, exactly what it was. They, mm-hmm. they just they in no way moved alien, apart from the one. That came off the, the the kind of very long the spidery one, one yeah. which was a marionette, I believe, I think so, or yeah. something along those. I just, I don't know. The, the the kid aliens didn't work for me. Um, and we can talk about. There were a number of special editions. Spielberg wanted 
some he had to rush this film out in seventy seven. Yeah, because bas- basically Columbia was go- Columbia was going bankrupt. Yeah, because he'd spent so much. He no, no, no it, it, well before this, they they were already okay. in trouble. Um, but yeah, he, it didn't help. Um, and so, so that he, he said, you know, summer 78 and they said, no, no, late 77. Uh, he, so he was immediately agitating for, I, I want to finish this off. I want to give it the six months more work that yeah. it needed. Um, and they, they eventually said, yeah, okay, we'll give you the money to do that, but, uh, you must give us some scenes in the mothership to hang the marketing off. Yeah. So uh, the, the special edition had they adds. Been, had they been filmed already, or were they? Uh, I don't believe so. Okay. Uh, I I thought that um, Dreyfus looked a bit older, but that may just have been the lighting. It's hard hard to be sure. Uh, yeah. the th- other stuff he added for that edition were the discovery of the Cotopaxi, the ship in the in the Moroccan desert, yes. Mongolian desert, was it? Um, uh, the Gobi Desert. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The press conference, uh, that breakdown in the bathroom. Oh yeah. That that was all him, added. Yeah. And then some other stuff got out, got cut out to make room because it wasn't significantly longer. So the shoveling the dirt through the window went, for example. Yeah, um, okay. But yeah, the mothership scenes really seemed to me they didn't say have very much to say. It's kind of two thousand and one, and kind of the abyssal version and kind of Star Trek motion picture. Yeah. And that whole yeah, obviously most of those came later. Uh, so yeah. The, yeah, so it that, would have devalued that moment that hit me when he glances back before he goes on. It's just, as you said to me offline, uh, it's just more mystery. It doesn't answer anything. It's just more bright lights. Yeah, that as as I see the structure of the film, they, they're building up the puzzle and mystery and so on, and that that final scene is the payoff. Yeah, it's it's not a great payoff from the point of view of actually working out what's going on, but it is the it really the was aliens. Payoff, they they really are. Good guys, yeah, and so on, and yeah. introducing more mystery at that point. It does seem to me a false note in terms of the structure of the story. Well, to Spielberg too, in his, you know, he didn't want to add that scene, and immediately. So what he did again was in '97. Yeah, he did a re- released cut, in '98, I think. Uh, and, and immediately excised the mothership, which he never felt added anything to the film either. Yeah, and, and, th- and then it, it, that's got some of the stuff from the original and some of the stuff from the special, and uh, that, well, that's, that's the, the version we I, th- I don't know if it was the first release of a director's cut. It was certainly a very early one. It feels like it. Was there a Blade Runner one at some point? Maybe that was, oh, there'd been so many Blade Runner directors, because <laughs> like, I've lost track. <laughs> uh, but there may have been, that may have been, it feels like among the earlier one, there may have been in it the Abyss director's cut too. There was, there is. but there is. that was. I, I think I think that was quite a bit later, just Maybe. in terms of what I heard about it. But yeah, yeah. So uh, so getting getting into real life, I, I would just like to mention uh, two books: uh, Charles Burlitz, The Bermuda Triangle, nineteen seventy four, right? Uh, which basically kicked this from a minor bit of local law into the big thing that it became. Right. It was that specific book. Uh, And then I I do not have a copy of this. I do, however, have a copy of Larry Cush's The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved, 1975. Which I saw on the shelf in your house and had a good old riffle for it. It's an excellent book. book. Basically, it's like, there is no mystery, that's why we've solved it. Yeah, it's dressed up as a yet another weirdness book. And it's, it's saying... Okay, this flight. Uh, so here, here's the actual Navy inquiry. 
and here's what they reckon happened. And this was the sort of, we, we, the legend doesn't mention that it was a navigation training flight. Yeah. So it's not entirely <laughs> implausible they could have got lost. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, um, the, the plane that, the first plane that was sent to search was a model that was known for, it was known as the flying gas can, uh, because it, it, it tended to build up fuel vapor. And somebody saw an explosion at about the right time and place after, shortly after their last radio contact. And yeah, things yeah. like that. Total mystery. What uh, happened? And, and the, the, the legends uh, vanished from a calm sea. Island newspaper the big, the next day. Biggest tornado ever. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, right, it's, it's yes. a beautiful book and highly recommended. Yes, uh, seconded. So, well, yeah. Well, uh, overall, I mean, I, we've probably covered it. Overall, almost despite myself, and certainly despite Roy Neary, I did enjoy it. I, uh, I, I managed to suspend my, uh, cynical scepticism, and I was hit right in the emotional chops, um, at an unexpected moment by a surprising Spielberg. So good job, Stephen. You are very good at that. I, I was not hit as effectively, I think, but I did enjoy it, um, largely for the visuals, not just the visual effects, but mm. the, the, the basic filmmaking competence. Yeah, he's a, you, yeah. There's a certain minimal level. Yeah, so, of some some of that's the DP, some of that's Spielberg, and it it just works. He's well beyond that minimum level. Oh yeah, yeah. You know you're in some good hands with Spielberg, even if you do as well. That's it. I'm thinking <laughs> of some of the films I've seen. <laughs> well, um, uh, there, there, there's a film critic I follow, Marianne Johansson, and her and a question she put on the site recently was, "What what film would you watch without the soundtrack, or with, with the soundtrack but without the dialogue?" And I just finished watching this, and I thought, yeah, actually, that could work quite well. well close encounters, yeah, 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 yeah. That's um, yeah, okay, that would work, yeah. Uh, anyway, fair enough. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Well, should we do our? So, uh, overall, is it a masterpiece? I'm going to kind of begrudgingly say yes. I mean, it has influenced. A it it lot does of what it sets out to do. Yes, it does exactly what it sets out to do. It hits, it, it did evoke an emotional response from me, despite me attempting it not to. Um, and it's been oft imitated and it, it kind of. Has it really? Well. I mean, it certainly gave rise to the X-Files. I would, I would immediately agree I would that. say, you know, you know, I've referenced Mars Attacks, but that was riffing on the kind of, uh, what if actually they weren't here. You know, I, I feel like I mean, any... There have been other enemy alien films, there have been other friendly alien films. I feel like any realistic modern-ish film that has first contact with aliens in it is aware of this film. Um, now, I, we may have moved yeah. on from that nowadays, because okay. there are some films... I, I think we it's been... To me, I think it's been irritated and parodied, parodied enough that we probably have moved on from it. You know, when I've seen, uh, well, one way that I would recommend it's, that I would say that it's influenced is there's a jokey scene in, I don't know why I keep referencing this film, but Weird Al Yankovic's UHF, mm-hmm. just randomly, um, they're sitting down to eat tea and he happens to have a mashed potato, which he then quietly moulds into <laughs> the shape of Devil's <laughs> Tower and looks at it saying, this means something. And that is a sign, <laughs> that is a sign to me that it has had an influence on popular culture. Yeah. So certainly there, there, there are some very recognisable bits that, 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 that five note motif, uh, the, the, the mountain oh, yeah. with the top sliced off. 
uh, yes, the general exactly. shape of the mothership. I mean, I obviously, obviously, I, I would not say that the famously litigious Whitley Stryber was, was, uh, influenced by this in, in his book about, uh, an alien encounter written several years later, because I mean, that, that would, that would be a, that would be a very terrible thing to say. But, no. uh, yeah. So but, uh... in 1977 <laughs> in film, uh, yes. how did we do, Roger? Uh, it's, it's in the top 10. Uh, so, I wonder what number one is. At number uh, ten, we have Annie Hall. Uh, okay, which, yes. It's Woody Allen. I I <laughs> like it. I know you have your issues with with Woody Allen. Um, so I, I just his style doesn't really work for me. Fair enough. Um, number nine. Oh God! Now that's an interesting one. Apart- oh, is that George Burns? Yes. Uh, oh well, my goodness! I've seen that film. I think. Uh, it, it, it also has Terry Gar as a wife. Oh really? Who, whose husband has had a revelation which she doesn't understand. Terry Gar, who has played Ronnie, um, Roy's wife in this mm-hmm. film. Uh, <laughs> wow. In the uh, same film. Same year, yep. Uh, same year, sorry. Uh, wow. so yeah, ba- basically, God appears to the supermarket manager and says, you are my new prophet, go and tell the world. It does not go particularly well. <laughs> no, fair enough. Um, wow. but yeah. With George Bond being God, of course. It's a very strange film. Um, it's it. I think there's no God Part Two as well, but um, we can. Probably. Uh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, number eight of the Spy Who Loved Me, uh, which I think is probably my favourite of the James Bonds, possibly because it was the one I saw first. Uh, I is that this? Yeah, I f- uh, I yeah. yeah, I agree that it's certainly the best of the Roger Moore Bonds, and therefore the best of all Bonds, and that's the hill I'll die on. It. That I've I've found the the well I'm I'm not a particular student of the films but I think I think they there are definitely good ones and bad ones and I think this is one yep. of the good ones. It, it holds uh, to, affirmative for for all it repeats various effects. It's uh, yeah never uh, bettered before Moonraker. Anyway, <laughs> Moonraker was the one where, where, where they the the I don't know the Writers Guild required them to hire a monkey as well as the actual screenwriter or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, number seven, The Deep. Uh, oh, a- attempting yeah. to prove that scuba diving films don't have to be boring, and I would argue probably uh, failing. Yeah, agreed. But it has Jacqueline Bisset in it, so you know, can't be all bad. Uh, also agreed. Uh, number six, A Bridge Too Far. Oh, interesting. Okay. Still doing Second World War films at that point, though. At at this stage, they they most they're having to. I I think this is the one where some of the people who were junior officers get bit parts as senior officers. Something, something like that. Um, right. In any case, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a it, good it, Christmas Day film back when there was such a thing as a Christmas it, Day film. It's a blockbuster. It's a huge film. Mm. Yes. Uh, One of those films. Yeah. Feels uh, like it's three hours long. Probably, probably only two and a half. To, to me, goes along with the longest day in that particular style. I, I often get them mixed up, as I did, in fact, last podcast. <laughs> uh, number five, The Goodbye Girl, uh, romantic comedy drama. Uh, oh, no, I've heard of it, but I don't... Well, maybe I'm thinking of the Squeeze song, but it's all right. <laughs> uh, number four, Saturday Night Fever. Wow. Uh, not, I think, John Travolta's debut, but definitely one of the things that made him a star. No, he was in a film before that, and I forget what it was. Um, um, anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, number three, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Number three, okay. Number two, go on, see if you can guess. Star Wars. No. Oh. Smokey uh, and the Bandit. Oh! 
What a film! <laughs> That's it. That beat. That beat. Close Encounters did it. Uh huh. God, that was when Burt Reynolds was uh, was bankable. By by about ten million, it made one hundred twenty six against one hundred sixteen. Goodness me, that is a. Hamilton, I don't want to great say stunt coordinator. Not uh, perhaps the world's best director, but a great stunt coordinator. <laughs> it's, a, it's a film of its time, which I have great <laughs> fondness for, but I'm not going to pretend it's a masterpiece. Yeah, and num- number one, yes, was, of course, Star Wars. Uh, I, I think, I can't remember the exact timing, but Close Encounters opened at about the time Star Wars was overtaking Jaws as the most profitable film ever. It was certainly towards the end of the year, and Star Wars was uh, earlier on, wasn't it? It was, it was <laughs> in the summer, Star Wars. Yeah. I don't know when Close Encounters came out. Um, ah, well, there we go. Lucas and Spielberg taking over, defining what the 80s film uh, scene was going to be, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there, there's influence from some of the others as well, but yeah, I, I would say Star Wars Close Encounters... Between them, I mean, Star Wars usually gets the credit when people name just one film, and that's probably fair. But yeah. we, we, we've said before that a, a lot of uh, filmed SF before this, particularly in the early seventies, was you know your, your eco doom stuff, mm. and ev- where everything is going to be horrible, um, ponderous and miserable, and, and not not all bad. Silent Running's great. Um, I don't like two thousand and one. I know. Uh, I forget who it was who wrote in to find out my views on Kubrick. Um, but, um, uh, the ni- 1973 film Silent Green. Oh, for example. People. That's a really good film. But, yeah, um, uh, the, the, when the was only... Planet of the Apes? Now, the, the, the only reason Silent Green got made was because Harrison went to the pitch meeting and may have given the, direct, the uh, producer to understand that he was making a cannibalism exploitation picture. <laughs> Which he sort of was, but probably not in the way the producer expected. Uh, first but film, yeah, 68. 67. Yeah. Oh, uh, lo- so lo- last, last one of the original series, 73. Right, okay. So it was the end of that kind of... Uh, I don't know how you'd describe that, but certainly distinctively uh, late, uh, early 70s sci-fi. And, yeah. uh, and then hitting into the blockbuster. And, well... Close Encounters is much more similar to Spielberg's later films than Star Wars. You know, uh, I mean, obviously there were Star Wars sequels, but I feel like Spielberg probably cast a longer shadow in general over film. Well, also because, um, I mean, there's E.T., yeah. I I was reminded of Batteries Not Included, um, which was marketed at the time as a Spielberg film, but he wasn't actually involved in writing it or, or directing it or anything. He but a uh, he'd started the production company by that point. And that while, while obviously he didn't, didn't put his hands directly on the productions, um, there was, cert- there was a certain amount of, this is the sort of film we want to make. And also, uh, Spielberg, was he a producer on Back to the Future? Uh, he was Maybe I'm misremembering that. I think he was a producer. And that, that was um, a, a bit later again. It was Bob so. Zemeckis, um, yeah. 85, it must have been, uh, given all the shenanigans that happened around 85 in the film. Um, I mean, Zemeckis, and, Zemeckis had worked a lot with uh, Spielberg. Yeah, so I feel he had more influence on... And then, of course, we have Raiders coming up pretty shortly, 81. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like, to me, I think it's fair to say Spielberg probably had more of an influence over 80s film than Lucas did, although he was a, you know, obviously the Star Wars films themselves are almost a huge part of 80s film just by themselves. Mm. 
And of course, uh, yeah, Lucas was uh, Indiana Jones as well. And lo- yeah, lots so. of people tried to make Star Wars ripoffs. Uh, some some with less success than others. I would refer you to Star Crash with David Hasselhoff, which I have a special fondness in my heart for. Well, that was interesting. That was a dip into. It felt like a dip into the eighties, largely because this is the way a lot of eighties cinema, at least that I watched, turned out. And it feels like yeah, we're that, really that that's certainly where we're talking about the long influence thing. It, it may maybe not directly imitated, but it was definitely a flavour that fed into. An awful lot of things, even things that aren't directly related to it. And it feels like we're a long way from the, you know, the American, uh, new, new cinema. <laughs> yeah. Um, that we talked about with Bonnie and Clyde. And that was, that was a relatively brief period, you know, 67 to here. I don't know. In that t- I'm not sure that the American new, I forgot what they call it now. It's been so new wave. About, new wave. I'm not, uh, it's interesting. We have Truffaut with the French new wave connection. Uh, the French connection. Well, yeah, there, there was, there was a, a, a direct overlap. In terms of um, people, so. But it's interesting, in that list of top ten, there weren't any you would identify as like new wave films. No. Was that was that ever true in the American new wave? I think it was in the in the heyday of the new wave. They were actually making money, uh, certainly Bonnie and Clyde, um, yeah. and those sorts of films. So it's interesting that we've pretty much seen the end of that, I would say, by 77. Well, looked, looked at uncharitably, what Spielberg does is give the audience what's going to push their buttons. Yeah, and he's very good at it. He's and yeah, there, there, there was a while where he basically he, he he could take a dump on the film and it would make money. Okay, not the next one he made, but after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, presumably the one after that was Raids of the Lost Ark. Uh, yeah, that comes before ET, doesn't it? But it was anyway. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll we will come on to that and on. But there we are, nineteen seventy-seven, and our first science fiction film. I, I, perhaps it's no surprise that we're both nerds and we've talked about this longer than any other film <laughs> um, so far. But fair enough. I, I yeah, I was, it was good. I enjoyed it. It did not really change my opinion of it particularly, except that Spielberg is um, uh, has got the goods when he needs them. Well, for me, it's a thing I've perhaps thought about briefly but certainly haven't seen for the last 40 plus years so it's interesting to revisit it and yeah i'm i'm not the same person i was then i'd be quite worried if i were (laughs) (laughs) um even spielberg isn't so next week i have a final pathology exam next week we are likely to miss a week though we have some ideas about what we're going to watch and it may well be one of our throwback episodes instead of going back to nine in forward to 1978 yeah let's see how we go We'll see. We'll see how we go. Um, I mean, if this becomes a chore, we'll just stop doing it. But so far, we're still enjoying it. Let's keep it that way. (laughs) Definitely. All right. Well, uh, lovely talking to you, Roger. And um, my final thing to say is... We've got to get you a sense of pitch one of these days. Oh, wow. I I was hoping you'd do a bass version of it, like the mothership. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) All right. Um, good uh, night, Roger, and thank you for joining us. See you next time. See you, bye. <laughs>